Well, let's turn to the Word of God this morning in the book of Galatians, chapter 5. We will be reading from verse 13 on to the end of the chapter. This is the Word of of the Lord to us this morning. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other. To keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus, having crucified the flesh, flesh with its passions and desires, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. And open your Bibles to Ephesians this time. Ephesians chapter 5. We'll be looking at verses 3 through 6 this morning. Ephesians 5, 3 through 6. The fruits of self-love. And what I mean by self-love is not the love where it says, you know, love your neighbor as yourself. It's not that. We're going to talk about that later in chapter 5. Uh, what we're talking about today is self-centered love. And, and you'll see that as we go through this. So, You have more in common with early Christians than you might realize. Like them, you too are surrounded by a culture that is consumed with sexual sins. Christians today can be deceived that God's teaching about sin, sexual sin, is not a big deal. And, and they will say, you know, if two unmarried people want to be intimate, that's their business. Or if they want to enjoy an alternate lifestyle, that is up to them. Early Christians were sometimes deceived into thinking like that too. At times they even caroused with immoral false teachers. Think there of Second Peter chapter 2 for that grievous sin. Slaves of corruption who, in the name of freedom, convinced some Christians to join them in fleshly desires. See, those Christians were easily deceived because they still operated based on self-centered love. We saw last time in chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, that we are called to walk in love. But not just any kind of love, godly love. 
other-centered love, a love that, that gives and serves. And so that is what Paul is telling us we must put on, just like the whole idea of the put-on, put-off uh Dynamic. It's like putting a garment on. We are to put on this other-centered godly love. And now in verses 3 through 6, we're going to see the put-off side of that equation. What is it that we are to put off? We are to put off self-centered love. You may, as you have read through this uh, passage, wondered how does Paul go from love, godly love, to then talking about these deeds of the flesh? Well, that's because he's, he's contrasting uh, godly love with here in 3 through 6, natural love. Self-centered love seeks its own good, seeks its own pleasure. And so what we'll see today, the main point is that Paul tells us to steer clear of all types of evil which carry severe consequences. Steer clear of all types of evil, which carry severe consequences. Those ways of evil are fruits of, they grow out of self-centered love. And so I'd like to take a minute to contrast self-centered love and other-centered love. So if we first go to uh, the next slide with love agape here, the the New Testament term for godly love. This is other-centered love. And we'll talk about a few things that we've covered a number of times in Ephesians as we've encountered this word agape. First, agape is not driven by impulse or external stimuli. That is, it doesn't love because, well, I find you lovely, and so I will love you. It doesn't do that. It deliberately chooses to act. It's a free choice. In other words, it's not forced by something exterior, it is, it's a choice that they make. You choose to love someone. We talk about you know, falling in love, and that, that's really a different thing. Biblical love, you choose to do that. It arises from the love that resides inside. You see, First uh, John 4, think there, where does love come from? Where does godly love come from? Well, it comes from God. We love because He first loved us. And so, as He has given us His love, then it works its way out, and we can then love the unlovely. And so, you know, I've said this many times, that that we should not think, well, I, I just I can't love them because they're not worthy. Biblical love can love the unworthy, which is really everybody around you, including yourself, right? They'd have, they love you even though you're unworthy. You love them even though they're unworthy. That's the kind of love that God loves us with because we are not worthy of His love, but He loves us and transforms us. And then, finally, it seeks the highest good of the other person. And so, you can kind of boil it down to seeking the highest good or giving, serving. And as I said before, for God so loved the world that He what? Gave. He gave us His Son. Right? It's giving. It's serving. And so, if we can go to the next slide. And, and here, just to illustrate, there's two scenarios there uh, that kind of got them divided, a little divider line there. But they're both kind of thinking the same thing as they are either like a mother with her child or here, the woman on the far right, seeing someone and what does she think? Okay, so <clears throat> godly love thinks this way. Their worthiness, the recipient... Their worthiness is not a factor. I don't say, well, are they really worthy of my love? That's not a factor. 
Instead, I love out of God's love for me. He has loved me, given me his love, and it's that love that comes from me to them, and I love them. I choose to meet their needs. I choose to love even when I don't feel like it. Okay, so there's a little bit of that, that sacrificial love we talked about. Sometimes you don't feel like it, but you love anyway. And the question for them is, how can I serve them? Okay, what need do they have and how can I give? How can I serve to meet that need? Okay, so now let's go to uh, natural love. Uh, this is in the, the Greek word, which is not in the New Testament, eros. Um, and I'm thinking here, it's it, what the way Plato defined this term and this love, it's natural love. It's broader than what we usually think of when we think of eros. You know, we think they're erotic and things where we get words from that. It does include that, but it's broader than that uh, in, in thinking of Plato and others following him. It's not just physical attraction, okay, in that sense. So this is natural love. It is self-centered love. And that's what we're going to find here in verses 3 through 6. It is driven by impulse. Some external stimulus prompts it. You know, so someone says, Oh, wow, she is so beautiful. I, I love her. He's so handsome. I love him. That kind of thing. This baby's so cute. I'm, you know, I love this baby, my baby. You know, it, it's an external stimulus. It loves because it finds the object worthy of love. And a lot of times it happens without conscious thought. And you think about how, you know, the movies and everything like to tell us, you know, just follow your heart. You know, that's actually one of the worst things you can do, right? So, because our hearts are deceptive and wicked. and No, they just kind of, it just happens, okay? And this natural love, sometimes for some people, it just kind of happens in a sense. And it really doesn't because there's something inside of them that says, yeah, you know, I want that. It is self-centered. And the question for them is, what can you do for me? And one other, too. It seeks to receive from the other. You see, rather than seeking to give, it's seeking to receive. You will make me happy. You can help me. You can do for me. And and so, the question is, what can you do for me? And so, um, let's see. Now, that this is what they say. The, the thinking here in those situations, like a, a mother with her child, for example, and you know, and I'm picking on the ladies here. I usually have a male stick figure there, and we beat up the guys. I'm gonna beat up the girls, so, right? You know, feminism, right? We're just equal opportunity. Uh, no. So there's a mother with her child, or a lady who uh, sees uh, a gentleman, thinking. They are lovely by my standards, and this is natural love. They are worthy of my love. They must meet my emotional needs. They must meet my expectations. They can make me happy. And the question for them is, what can you do for me? Not, how can I serve you? What can you do for me? So, let's turn our attention now to the text. First main point, steer clear of sinful conduct. Verse 3, steer clear of sinful conduct. I want to back up to verse 1, pick up the put on part of the context. Ephesians 5, 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ also loved you. He gave Himself up for us 
an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. But do not let immorality or impurity or greed or covetousness even be named among you as is proper among the saints. What a contrast. So we read verses 1 and 2, and it's talking about godly love. Love that imitates Christ, the one who gave Himself up for us. You see, there's that idea, again, that agape is is giving, serving. That's what Jesus did. He gave Himself up for us, Paul says there. It often requires sacrifice, serving others. But self-centered love, starting here in verse 3, pursues self-indulgence. Make me happy. What's the command here? The negative command. After he commands them to imitate God and walk in love, what's the negative? This, the fruits of self-centered love must not be named among you. There's no room among believers for evil conduct, which comes out of this self-centered love. And this is this command is present tense. It means keep presenting or keep preventing this being named among Christians. Keep working at that. Don't let it be named among us or us to be associated or this associated with us. That these these things, immorality, impurity, greed. Now it doesn't mean some people will misunderstand that. They, they say that, well, you you can't even say them. Like, well, okay, then Paul broke his own command. By writing this. And I'm breaking his command by preaching it. No, it's not that at all. It means that it be associated with us. Is what Paul is talking about here. That people say, oh, you know, Christians. I mean, they're they're just like everybody else. You know. What are these fruits? First one he gives us is immorality. The Greek word behind it is porneia. It refers to sexual immorality. That is, all physical sexual contact outside of the marriage relationship. This includes all sex before marriage. It includes all sex after marriage, except with your spouse. Anything else is sexual sin. It is immorality according to the Scriptures. The second fruit is any kind of impurity. And here, Paul saying any kind of, he's, he's broadening it, but also the term impurity is broader than uh, immorality. It's broader than the concept behind porneo. It refers to a broad range of moral uncleanness, from sexual lust to a broader licentiousness. And what he's doing is he's, he's trying to here capture all kinds of, of immoral thought, behavior, all of that together. So there's the, the physical behavior in immorality, and then there's everything else, including like thought life, uh, sexual lust, for example, capturing all of that together by using these two terms. And he gives us a, gives us a third term, greed or covetousness. This is extreme selfishness. It's greed for anything from... It it could be material things. A lot of times that's the way we think of greed. You know, they want more money. They want more stuff. It does include that. But it it also will include sexual greed. And so there is overlap between these terms. And there's this idea that greed will lead to... This covetousness will lead to those other sins. Okay, so you can think about how uh, someone with sexual greed would then 
end up in immorality, right? It can manifest itself in lust, as greed then works its way out into lust, uh, where they you covet someone for your own selfish gratification. And so covetousness, this greed, um, there's a difference. Sometimes there are some things that are okay to want, but you might be greedy or covetous about good things, and you can, and, but it becomes covetous when there's envy involved. It's like, wow, I wish I had what they have. You know, I, I like, you know, his pickup truck. I, I want that. I'm, I'm envious of him. And it becomes sinful. Other than, you know, if you just say, well, it'd be nice if I had something like that. That's not covetous. Okay, if it's a, a good thing, that's okay to want. It's covetous when there's envy or when you demand that. When it becomes a demand. And we'll talk more about that in a sec. <clears throat> so, Paul said, these should not even be named among you. They, they shouldn't be associated with the church, with the saints. He said, and so, not allowing them to be named among us is proper among saints. And, and saints are not a special class of, of Christian. Okay? Uh, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are a saint. Okay? Um, a saint just means believer. We, we saw that we were, that we're called here, verses 1 and 2, to walk in love. But we can't forget that we just went through walk in holiness in chapter 4, the last part of that chapter. These sinful traits, they reveal self-centered love, not godly love. So first, Paul said, steer clear of sinful conduct. Now, number two, steer clear of sinful conversation. Sinful conduct and sinful conversation. Verse 4, going on there. So after talking about those that conduct, and there must be no filthiness, silly talk, or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. Sins of speech are inappropriate for believers. And they were inappropriate for everybody, but believers can't say that. We're, now we're, you know... You know, exempted, and we can do that. No. The first is filthiness. This is disgraceful, shameful speech. It's obscene. Uh, it's dirty speech. And it can include things like cuss words, as we call them. Second is silly talk. It refers to foolish talk, uh, talking without really any sense. Um, what it does is it, it takes away from what we learned back in chapter 4 about um, being able to build up in edif- edifying speech. Remember that? Don't say any word except that what can be you know good for edification. Well, if you're just given to silly talk, you're not going to have time and place for talking about things that can edify. I had a, a seminary classmate, and this is always the thing that comes to mind when I think of him. He was a real nice guy and all, but he only spoke in silly talk. I never, ever heard him say anything serious. And it was like life was a string of silliness, you know, and he had a silly name for everybody, you know, that which he would kind of sing song when he walked by you, you know. And it was just, but it was all the time. It's all he ever did, you know. That's what Paul's talking about here. You know, not wasting your, your breath and just always talking silly. Now, humor is certainly allowed for believers, but it shouldn't keep us from talking about the seriousness of life. 
We need to have time and place for edifying one another, encouraging one another, comforting those who hurt and grieve, instructing. But some humor is clearly sinful. And Paul calls it coarse jesting. And Dr. Honer said this about it. It is jesting that has gone too far. Sarcastic ridicule that cuts people down and embarrasses others who are present. It's humor in bad taste. And it could include, it's not confined to, but it can include, you know, dirty jokes or suggestive jokes, that sort of thing. So, he's saying, this is not okay. And, you know, we we need to be thinking about this because I know um, there was, I know when I was growing up, there was a, there were a lot of the Victorian mindset that's still around. It's still around today somewhat. Uh, some people call it puritanical, and that's really a misnomer. That's inappropriate. That's not a, an appropriate use of the term Puritan because Puritans weren't puritanical. Um, they but it was the Victorians who were puritanical, um, and and they, they things. Oh, you know, you can never never talk about sex. You know, you know. Now, we shouldn't be flipping about it, but we went too far one way in that it's almost like that's dirty and it's bad, even in marriage. You, you know, it's, it's only for you know, procreation and that kind of thing. And, and so then, I know you, you young folks, you, you feel the, the pressure of this. You feel how people are, are saying, oh, you know, that, that's just the way our grandparents were. And, you know, they, they just kind of, you know, had that Victorian mindset. And so they go all the way to the other way to where now everything is okay. You know, to the point where some say even, you know, immorality is okay. Or, you know, you know using dirty words is okay. Um, and I know, uh, talking to plenty of young people, that you feel that. Because not only does the world put that pressure on you, but then there are other Christians who put that pressure on you. You know, and they say, oh, you know, that's just the old ways. And it's like, don't worry about it if it's old or new. Is it biblical? You know, go back to the Scriptures. What do they say? <clears throat> Sinful speech is not fitting it's not appropriate for God's people. We're to behave. Remember what started off this whole section when Paul now is applying all that rich doctrine from chapters 1 through 3? And he says in 4.1, to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Okay, and then he's now telling us all the different ways that that, you know, what that looks like. You know, walk in unity, walk in holiness, now walk in love, what we're, what we're dealing with. You see, it's not fitting for us to to live that way anymore. Now, this might surprise you. And I always, a lot of times, would kind of scratch my head when I would read through this passage. And he says, okay, you know, this sinful conduct or sinful conversation is, is inappropriate. Okay, I get that. But he says, rather giving of thanks. You know, I don't know if it's just me or you might have like, I don't necessarily see those as opposites. You know, and so we have to think about it a little bit to see why they are indeed opposites. Why, in a sense, here's, he kind of picks this up as part of the put on, if you will. What should we put in the place of the sinful speech? Well, the giving of thanks. So how is that the opposite of self-centered love? Well, a couple of things to suggest. One, John Stott suggests that we should give thanks for God's good gifts rather than perverting them. 
And, and we can pervert them in two different ways. And I've kind of already talked about that a little bit. But we can pervert them in one way of <clears throat> treating, like, for example, sex within marriage as if it's a bad thing. And I remember growing up, not that my parents ever said this, but the, the culture around us, and especially the religious people around us that I grew in the context where I grew up, that you know, sex was always a bad thing except when you're planning to have a baby. That's the only time it's okay. And, you know, you have to go confess your sin. And I was like, I, I don't get that in the Bible, you know. And and so that is one way that Stott suggests, and he's right, that we pervert these things. Don't pervert it by treating like sex outside of marriage as, as it's a good thing. Okay? Because that, that's perverting it too. And that's what we find more dominant today, probably, um, in our culture and even within Christendom these days. Second, in addition to we should be faithful to give thanks to God for his good gifts, is to do this. Regarding greed or covetousness, don't focus on what you're not receiving. Isn't that kind of what we're tempted to do? We focus on what we don't have. We focus on what we, we're not receiving right now. We think, you know, I need this, I have to have this to be happy. And then we focus on, I don't, I don't have that, I'm not receiving that. That's the wrong perspective. Focus instead on how God has been so generous to you and how He is still generous to you. You see, it's the giving of thanks. You go back and you thank God. And there are times where just things come to mind for me, you know, from, you know, long time ago. I mean, like a lot of the, the stupid things that I did as I was growing up in my early, you know, college years and stuff like that. And it's like, man, I should have died. You know, you were talking about that this morning. You now it's like, because it was just, it was stupid. It was careless, reckless. But what I do is, Lord, thank you. You didn't let me get what I deserved. You know, you didn't let me, you know, get into, you know, this horrible accident accident and die or whatever. Thank you, Lord. We should be thanking the Lord. And then think about how He's thankful to you right now. Even when, you know, you, when you think, oh, you know, I'm not receiving this. I don't have this. Well, don't spend all your time thinking on that. Think about all that you do have. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you've got more than enough to give thanks about. Right? And I can, you know, if, if you have problems with that, let's get together. I'll take you back through Ephesians 1, you know, and then 2, and then 3. I mean, you're just going to have, you know, overwhelmed with the goodness of God. But even the, the little things of life, I mean, you've got so much. He is so generous. <clears throat> so develop a reputation for giving thanks. And, and I was trying to word that. And I stuck with that, but I wanted to bring out, and maybe somebody, not right now, but later, maybe think of a better way to say it. Because I wanted it to be almost a reputation in your mind, you know, so that the Lord, who knows your thoughts, thinks that you've got a reputation for giving thanks. You know what I'm saying? That that you and God, who know your thoughts, that it's it, it's just, wow. You know, it's like I want God, who knows, to think, John's faithful to give thanks. He, he gives thanks all the time. That, he gives thanks, you know, he's getting to the point where he's almost giving thanks more than he's, you know, complaining, right? Or maybe now I'm giving thanks more than I'm complaining, right? You want to develop that reputation, not just among other people. Yes, that, but also to bring in that 
you know, your thought life. Okay. Okay. So steer clear of, of sinful conduct, steer clear of sinful conversation. And then three, those who don't, who don't steer clear of those will face severe consequences. Those who don't will face severe consequences. And let's break that down into verses 5 and 6 separately. Verse 5, those, they will not inherit God's kingdom. So here's the first uh, statement that he makes about the severe consequences. They will will not inherit God's kingdom. Verse 5, for this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. So here is the the seriousness of why you have to steer clear of those sinful ways because of the consequences. And I want you to understand, Paul's not saying here that if you... He's not saying that a Christian will never fall into these sins... He's saying that they're, they're not characterized by them. Now, that doesn't mean that it's okay to give yourself permission once in a while to do whatever. No, not at all. Because that, if you think that way, you need to pay attention to this warning, okay, even more so. But, if, okay, like, you know, cuss words, okay, so that filthiness of speech. And if you say, hey, that's not that big a deal, that's a problem. If... Well, you know, when I when I get angry, I give myself permission to cuss. That's a problem. But maybe you that used to be a part of your you know, you know vocabulary, and God has sanctified you. But once in a while, it slips out, and you really didn't want that to slip out. That's not the person he's talking about. Okay, it's the one that kind of you know gives himself permission to do this, whatever these sins that he's talking about. He's talking about people who are characterized by one or more of these. And so he picks up three of those again, but now he, he states them not as the sins, but as the person who commits that, who's known for that sin. And that's, that's what I'm talking about, the char- that they're characterized by it. It's not <clears throat> so much a, a person who happens to have committed an act of immorality. It is an immoral person. You see, they're characterized by it. This is, this is how, you know, what they're known for. Or an impure person, or a covetous person. But you may have noticed that he adds something there. He talks about that covetous person. The covetous person is an idolater. That doesn't mean the others aren't. But he calls that one out. But you remember we talked about greed, covetousness, and how it kind of bleeds back over, and it actually leads to. Those other things. So if you have, you know, for example, sexual greed, then it, you're, you'll become immoral or practice immorality. Your, your idol is going to lead you that way. So he's saying covenant, coveting, coveting is idolatry. Okay. And it can be coveting material things and it can lead to immorality too, like I was saying. And I don't have time to go into it, but something some of you might enjoy is, I don't know if you realize that the Ten Commandments are bracketed by forbidding idolatry. 
Okay, well, you, you, you would agree with me really easily. First one, you shall have no other gods before me, and it goes right into, which that's forbidding idolatry. Okay? And then he goes right into, in, don't even make an image, number two, right? But what's number ten? Remember that one? Coveting, thou shalt not covet. Well, Paul just said here that coveting is what? It's idolatry. So really the Ten Commandments are bracketed there. And if you think about this idea of idolatry and you read back into all the commandments, you see all these connections that that's really what's going on there. God is saying what? What Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. You see, that takes us back here to walk in love. You see, so there's these beautiful tie-ins, and I kind of thought about talking about that today, but then it's like we would be here till 2. So, and I know the nursery workers would string me up. So, but something to, to kind of, for us to talk about, you know, offline, as we say, uh, and and think about more, kind of a neat neat connection So whatever the person covets, it becomes the center of his thinking. That's what he worships. That's what Paul's trying to say. You see, so, you know, when when David found himself coveting Bathsheba, that's what he was worshiping. He wasn't worshiping God at that moment. That's gone, you know, okay? Not gone, but I mean, he's he's not doing that. And he's, he's now thinking, oh, boy, I would be happy if I had her. That's where his worship went. Idolatry is worshiping anything other than the Creator. So how does this work? And, and how do we apply this? Because, you know, you may have have been thinking as we've gone through this so far, it's like, yeah, immorality, nope, don't do that. Impurity, nope, it's not me. You know, greed, I'm not greedy. And then the, the filthy speech, nope, that's not me. You know, and you're like, I think it was Jared praying, you know, that we've not, you know, think of, uh, oh, yeah, well, they need that. Yeah, right. <laughs> how does that, how does, how do you need that? How do I need this? Well, <clears throat> think about your expectations. And and some of you know, I I beat up expectations every chance I get, okay? Because they're bad. I'll show you why. Expectations represent your idols, Okay, think about, you know, especially if someone says, well, I just, you know, your expectations are killing me. I can't live up to your expectations. Okay, those are your idols. It's what you think will make you happy. Okay, it's, think about this. When you think, I must have blank, and then I'll be happy. That is an idol. And that becomes an expectation, Right? So, with a covetous heart, what you do is you lay out expectations for the people around you, not necessarily everybody, but some people, the ones you think you can get away with it on, okay? You lay out those expectations, and sometimes it's God, right? And you, you lay out expectations, and you demand that they fulfill those expectations. And so, thinking, okay, so, you, you know, Lord, I would be happy if you gave me blank, and whatever that is. And then he doesn't give it to you, and you get angry with him. You're saying, Lord, okay, I guess you don't want me happy. Because if, you know, for me to be happy, you've got to give me this. You see, you're, you're, you're putting a, uh, you're making it a demand of God. And again, like I said, it, it's different from, Lord, 
You know, I would like, you know, if you're a single person, you know, I, I would really like to have a spouse. And, you know, and that's okay. But when it becomes a demand, that's where you've crossed the line. That becomes your idol. And your expectations, they make everybody miserable, right? You make others miserable because you put demands on them. It's like, I, you know, you are supposed to make me happy, so you need to do this. Okay? You know, kids, you've got to be good. I'll be happy. Parents, give me all the stuff I want. I'll be happy, right? So we put those, we, those demands on each other and we make them miserable. But your expectations will make you miserable too. Because you know what? You don't realize it, but they make you vulnerable. Why? Because they might fail you. And they probably will fail you. You know, there's a few people that you might find and you manipulate and then they, you know, they'll do everything they can because they've got this, you know, people-pleasing problem and, and they'll do everything they can to try to meet your expectations. But they're going to fail you. And, and and we wouldn't say that God failed us, but if you put expectations on God, demands on God, He may say, I'm not giving that to you. That's not right for you right now. And so what is happening in this? It makes you vulnerable because what you're doing is you're, you're placing your happiness in their performance. If you just do this, I'll be happy. Well, guess what? They're sinners and, and they're broken and, and, and maybe that's not even the right thing for you. And you're not going to get it. And now you're going to be miserable. Vulnerable. Because in a sense, what you do is when you put expectations on other people, what you're doing is you're handing them the keys to your happiness. You're saying, my happiness is dependent upon you performing the way I demand you to perform. Well, that's not going to happen the way you think it ought to. So anyone who makes a habit of any of these traits, whether we just talked about covetousness or any of the others, Paul warns they do not have an inheritance in the kingdom of God or Christ and God. And he says both of them there. It belongs to both of them. Okay. Every true believer receives an inheritance in God's kingdom. Some people try to teach that. Well, you know, you might get to heaven, but you won't get an inheritance. That's not biblical. Okay. Every believer in Jesus Christ receives an inheritance in God's kingdom. And unbelievers only receive God's wrath. And you go back to chapter 2, verse 3. That's all they have to look forward to is God's wrath. So we broke this, the, this, these severe consequences down. Let's go to the second part of that, verse 6. They will receive God's wrath. And that's kind of what I was just segueing into, right? Verse 6. <clears throat> Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Remember, as I said, you have a lot in common with early Christians. Just like today, people back then tried to deceive them into thinking that the things that God said about sin, it's not that big a deal. You know, those are old, antiquated ideas. They say, you know, it doesn't matter how you live. Some will say, you know, what's accepted in the world is okay for Christians too. That is that is not true. You, believer, are commanded to maintain your stand against anyone, 
whether it be people in the world or even professing believers who are telling you some of these things that are not not biblical, to go against God's word, you must take your stand against them. Those who teach that sinful behavior is not a problem. Paul says those are empty words. They don't even have any reality, no content. It's just they're empty. They're worthless. They're not true. Because what God actually says is this, and, and, and you go to the Word of God and it tells you, like it does here, what is sin. God takes sin seriously. Those empty words are void of truth. <clears throat> this is a stern warning for those who are characterized by these things. The wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. These are not saints. These are those who are still dead in sin. Instead of being known for being like God in Christ, what we saw in verses 1 and 2, they're known for disobeying God's Word. So, what is it that you want and you're not receiving? You might not think of yourself as covetous, I would imagine... You know, if somebody says, hey, do you consider yourself a covetous person? Most of us would say no. Now, we might not say I'm perfect or, you know, but we might not have given us given ourselves that label. But if you feel like you would be happy only if, and then fill in the blank. I can only be happy if. Or if you find yourself placing demands on others, expectations. Even God. You need to explore the possibility of idolatry. Maybe there is an idol that you need to go after and destroy it. You know, like you read in the Old Testament. You know, they would set up idols and a good king would come along and they'd go and they'd just destroy them all. You might need to do that in your own heart, in your own soul, your, your, technically in your flesh. Kill those desires or put them into the right place. If it's a desire for a good thing, put it back to the level of, yeah, it would be nice if, but I'm okay if not. Okay, if that's what you really feel, then that's okay if it's a good thing. But if it's, I can only be happy if. I demand that. It's probably become an idol. So, as we are talking about this whole idea of godly love versus self-centered love, there are people, you know you know how out in the world, and in, in many churches, sadly, the idea of love has become so corrupted, and, you know, what our teaching on agape is probably like night and day from what you hear. And those slides I gave you at the beginning, the differences in... Self-centered love and other-centered love. I mean, some of that may have been a little shocking, and it should be. Because that's not what we hear. And so many people think that, you know, and we feel this. You, you feel this. Well, if you're loving, then you'll tolerate fill-in-the-blank. Right? That you'll tolerate that. There's a difference between... Loving someone who is that, whatever kind of lifestyle. Loving them and caring about them and trying to bring the gospel to them. 
and saying their sin is okay. Those are very different. And, And to show you this and to take us into the Lord's table, if you want to, you can turn over to chapter, a little later in chapter 5, Ephesians 5. Again, talking more specifically about agape, the, the godly love, the love that Christ had. I want to show you what His goal in love is. It is not to say that sin is okay. That is not godly love. <clears throat> so here as He's talking to husbands, Ephesians 5.25, He says, Husbands, love your wives. How? Just as Christ also loved the church, which we saw that in verse 2, right? And He gave Himself up for her. There's a sacrificial element to it. Why? Why did He do that? So He could just leave her in her sin? So that He goes, ah, you know, it's not that big a deal. No. That He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. See, that is the goal of godly love. First, Christ, and then we emulate him, and we seek it. We don't, we don't just you know, stand on the corner and tell everybody how horrible they are. That's not right. We should say, okay... Let's sit down. I'm going to show you what God says. And, you know, you're not going after their sin and you think, feel like if I just convert them from their sin, they'll be okay. No, they'll still be, you know, on the path to destruction. You, you talk to them as a sinner, just like you were a sinner. And you say, okay, love has a goal. Bring you to Christ so that you can be saved by Him and then washed. That's what Paul told the Corinthians, right? Chapter 6. And such were some of you, and he had that list of sins. He said, but you were what? Washed. And, and some other things, right? You see, he's, that is, that's what love does. It says, okay, I, I'm not going to say that your sin is okay. Your sin shows that you need a Savior. And that Savior wants to save you and wash you, sanctify you, so that you will be a part of His bride. And all of us are being sanctified. Those of us who are here, none of us are are done with sanctification. None of us are pristine yet, but we're in the process and Christ is working in us. That is love. So I want us to think about this while we're taking the Lord's table. Meditate on what, what godly love, what its goal is, and what God has done, what Jesus has done. That's, that's what we think about at the table. We celebrate at the table. What has Jesus done for us, for sinners?